Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of deals, mergers, and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thanks for listening. After a very quiet year in initial public offerings last year, we've seen a bit more activity in 2017, but the results haven't been particularly good, at least for some of the more well-known companies. You've heard us talk about some of these IPOs on the show with our IPO reporter, Alex Barinka. She joins us again to help explain what's gone wrong with some of the biggest, most high-profile IPOs. Welcome back, Alex. Thanks for having me. So before we get into it from a case-by-case basis, maybe first explain what we've seen this year, not in terms of performance yet, but just in terms of participation, because we saw so few IPOs last year until about late in the year, right? What happened and what have we seen so far this year? So you remember last year, the beginning of the year um, was kind of a continuation of the volatility and uncertainty with equity market investors that hung over since uh, late 2015. So basically into the summer, uh, minus a little bit of activity in May, we had a really slow year for IPOs. There's this whole supply demand dynamic that goes on for new listings. If the companies are ready to go, uh, that's great. But if no no one wants to buy a stock that's inherently seen as more risky because it's new, then you can't launch a deal. So um, we saw a lot of pickups starting after Labor Day of 2016. And 2016 ended up rounding out the year with 121 corporate listings in the U.S. to raise $20 billion worth of uh, stock. And this year, we've already surpassed the amount of stock sold. So this year, right now, uh, through into July, we're sitting at $21.4 billion worth of shares sold in 88 listings. So the read through there, the average deal size this year has been about $240 million. Last year, the average deal size for the year was $166 million. So it's an easy comparable because last year was so slow. But it does seem like a lot of the companies that perhaps uh, hung up their listing plans in 2016 have started to get out the door. And just to be clear, is it the performance of the equity markets that has changed their minds saying that, okay, now is a good time to go? Because we'll get into it in, in just a, a few minutes. It's not like the performance of some of the high-profile IPOs have been great. So is it just the overall market that's what's convincing them to say, okay, this year feels good? So uh, equity markets broadly have stayed kind of up and to the right, right? We're still in this bull market. Investors are uh, now having come back around to have a risk appetite. I think it's that sentiment factor that's been more important. Volatility has been very low. Whether or not there's concerns about whether that's artificially low, I think is a conversation for another time. But that being said, um, it's been a, a decent time for these listings to go out and price because, look, their, their comparables are trading at good numbers. Numbers, and those uh, public peers will help impact the valuation a company could get when it goes public. All right, so let's start with some figures, and then we can go one by one here and explain what's happened to a few of these. Our summer intern, Carson Bednar, is leaving us this week. We'll miss Carson. He helped put together some of these figures. You've heard me mention him before in this podcast. All right, Blue Apron. So that's maybe the most uh, notable recent one, uh, not the biggest one, but it began trading just a few weeks ago on June 28th. It's already down 34% since IPOing at $10 a share. Snap, owner of Snapchat, offer price $17 a share. That's the biggest one of the year. In fact, we'll get to that one in more depth in a few minutes again. One of my favorite episodes of this podcast is the bull versus bear debate between Alex and fellow reporter Sarah Fryer on Snap back on February 28th. That's episode 66 of this podcast. Snap, offer price $17 a share. Today, it's trading at below $15. That's a new low, down 12% since IPOing. 
Altice USA. This is seemingly a safer bet. It's an already established cable company that acquired Cablevision and Suddenlink. Altice in France is an existing company. They IPO'd Altice USA, their USA, U.S. assets, up just 6.3% since its IPO on June 21st. That's not really your standard IPO pop there. Presidio, an information services company, up 3% since filing March 9th. The S&P is up over the same time period 4%, so it's even underperforming the broader market. Cloudera is up 20%. That's better, but still not great, considering shares rose 21% on its first day of trading, so it's actually down since that initial IPO pop. And then there are one or two more somewhat high-profile ones that have done better. You've got MuleSoft, the enterprise software company. That's up 50%. That's more likely. That's more like what we're used to seeing among some of these high-flying unicorn companies. It has sustained its one-day pop when it rose from $17 a share to $24.75 in its first day of trading. That's a 46% gain, so now it's up 50%. Uh, And Canada Goose, a Toronto-based retailer, is up about 50% since its IPO back in March. So that's a little snapshot of what we've seen so far. So before we start getting into each of these on a case-by-case basis, are there any macro trends that, that are accounting for what we're seeing with some of the underperformance? It's not necessarily a a trend per se. You can't necessarily watch a line move. But this idea, especially with the quote unquote unicorns, these private companies that are valued over a billion, Snap and Blue Apron fall into these categories. We've talked before about the dynamic that happens in private funding land or that has been happening over the past few years. You've had a lot of public market investors wanting to get a piece of these companies before they go public. That's helped drive up private market valuations when there's less financial information out there. There's less disclosure. Um, and so you have these private market values that now, especially with Snap and Blue Apron, these two deals uh, hit the public markets and public market investors just weren't buying into those valuations. So even the fundamentals of the company aside, uh, they or the performance of the company aside, the fundamentals didn't back up those valuation if you ask the public market investors. So this is going to be something that uh, we've seen impact the exit pipeline. You hear uh, I hear from my sources people talking about, oh, you know, so-and-so still needs to grow into their valuation before they can try to go public, or strategic acquirer X is not interested because the the price tag is too high, even though they'd like to own that asset. So that's been something that slowed down the exit pipeline for especially these technology companies, um, and, and I think will continue. And if you are a pre-IPO company or an advisor, you're thinking long and hard about how do we price this IPO? IPO, what's the valuation going out the gate? And do we want to have to stomach some of this negative aura that can happen after these deals, frankly, go bust once they get into the public sphere? So that's a really interesting point and something that investors should think about. In other words, what you're saying, Alex, is that in the case of some of these, strategic companies are actually telling them, you are too expensive. Your your last round of, of valuation prices you at a valuation that we don't think is realistic. So then when they go down upon IPOing, it's somewhat natural because they've basically been told by potential acquirers, you are too expensive, but there's nothing you can do about it at that point, right? Because you can either sell at a huge down round or you can roll the dice and go public 
almost knowing that you're going to fall in valuation because all these other companies have basically told you you can't support your evaluation. And starting last year, post-Labor Day, when we did see a pickup in uh, IPO activity, investors hadn't been able to get their hands on new stock. And, and early in the year, there was so much aversion to risk that just across all asset classes, investors were being very picky. That left them second half of the year not necessarily uh, making the their portfolio returns that they wanted. So they were willing to bet on these IPOs because they'd done better. On the flip side, on the supply side, these IPOs were being priced pretty conservatively to get them out the door. The valuations weren't necessarily as high as they might have been in 2014 when it was a booming IPO market. So people were piling into these listings in late 2016. As we got into this year, it seems like the, the valuations, if you look at the price to sales multiples, as especially for these like t- enterprise tech companies, they've marched their way back up. Uh, these companies are being a little bit more aggressive on pricing. Investors were buying into it, but now it seems like uh, you know people are, are scratching their heads maybe a few minutes longer before decide- deciding what, whether or not to invest in a new IPO. By the way, I suppose you wonder if some of these companies do, in fact, you know, continue to come down in value, do they then become acquisition targets? And you know, how long does Snap stay up? Uh, public company. You don't know. Obviously, you'd imagine the people that are running Snap, Evan Spiegel, etc., want to make this thing into the next Facebook. But at some point, you know, depending on how long it continues to underperform, maybe their vision changes. I don't know. So let's begin with Blue Apron, because we just did this episode a few weeks ago. It's down 34% already. Is this all the Amazon threat? So, so to give it a little bit of context, um, Amazon agreed to buy Whole Foods on a Friday. The next Monday, uh, Blue Apron launched their IPO. They set terms. They went out saying, we want to raise uh, upwards of $500 million at a valuation of $3.2 billion, which is basically in line with their last private round. Before the week was almost was even over, before their roadshow was even over, they slashed that. It was the biggest a second biggest cut of an IPO range uh, in the past five years, down to a, a high-end value of about $2 billion. So that a lot of that was the Amazon effect. A source told me in the in the course of the roadshow, management really tweaked their uh, pitch to investors to focus this idea, to focus on the idea that they're different than grocery. They're different than grocery delivery. What they do in sending out these meal kits where they chop up all the items and give you the exact ingredients is different. It's a lifestyle. And they're were really harping on those ideas. So investors really didn't buy in. I mean, they ended up raising less than they expected. They raised $300 million. Um, they, When they listed, it was a $1.9 billion valuation, well under the $3.2 billion high end they were going for. And and that was just in, you know, in two weeks' time, they basically uh, almost more than a billion dollars in market value, poof, disappeared. And I think a lot of that was due to Amazon. And the reason I can say this so confidently now is just yesterday, um, we number of news outlets, including Bloomberg, we reported on a, a lovely little trademark that Amazon filed. Amazon filed a trademark to get into the meal kit business. And and that was always the fear, right? And, and this right, co- the one differentiation factor now isn't even a differentiation right, factor. It completely undermines um, this differentiation pitch. Um, and Blue Apron, there was always this question, and we talked about it on the last Blue Apron episode. 
how do you value them? They wanted a valuation that was richer than e-commerce companies, yet grocery was way down the chain. They started edging down toward grocery as this Amazon news started to come out. And now, you know, you have the the literal mammoth in the room not only saying we're pushing into your space, we're pushing into feeding, you know, the, the population. They're saying we are now looking into literally exactly what you do and we have logistics to do it. And the kicker for Blue Apron, since they raised less money, they uh, it's a very capital intensive business. They they also spend a lot on marketing. And to outmarket and outgrow Amazon in meal kit delivery, it costs money. And now they have less of a war chest on hand. They said they only have uh, at least 12 months of runway of cash and borrowing capacity on hand. They're going to need more money soon. So if you're an investor and you're thinking about, okay, um, do they uh, load up, uh, expand their credit lines, which can, you know, it's not necessarily a a great sign loading up on debt. Do they sell more equity eventually because they need the capital? These are also kind of downward pressure on a stock. So frankly, they're in a tough spot and they've only been public for, this is their 13th trading day today on Tuesday, and the stock's been down more than 6% on, on five of those through yesterday's trading. It's just interesting to me. I don't, maybe you have a better understanding of how this works to me and you can explain it to me, Alex, that I mean, the threat, we spoke about the Amazon threat and how it wasn't much of a stretch for Amazon to get into meal kits before this company went public. And yet now, I mean, literally as we speak, I'll now amend my 34% down to 37% down. Who is selling? Who are, is it, is it the, the VCs? Is it the institutional investors that, that were sold on the pitch and then now two weeks later they're out? Is it the retail investors? Are enough retail investors in the stock to drive it down 35%? So I'm guessing it's going to be um, the new folks who are in the stock, because typically there are lockups on these. Um, full disclosure, I haven't looked deeply at Blue Apron's lockups, but there's usually lockup for existing holders who had a stake before the IPO. And of course, locked. there has been no 13D or anything that's come exactly. out, so we don't know what the changes in holdership are. So we're just guessing here. Exactly. So, you know, what we started to see um, in a lot of the enterprise deals, which was the majority of the tech deals that listed in the past 12 months or so, you saw a lot of momentum coming in and out of the stock on the first on the early days of trading. So, uh, depending on how these shares were allocated, depending on who was in the book when this deal was launched, uh, might give you some clues. If it's people who you know are wanting to take a quick return, they might have pushed to get an allocation of the IPO, and now they're out. Um, but yesterday's news: look, if you are unless you are so convicted that Blue Apron's gonna gonna win this race, you have to be second guessing whether or not you want to hold on to those shares. All right. So let's talk about Snap now. Uh, so that's a, it's a, that's, that's a quick synopsis of why Blue Apron has struggled. Snap is at its, as I said, at its sort of record low now, below $15 a share. We talked about the potential pitfalls of Snap too before it went public. What ha- Has the story changed at all? Since it's gone public, why has this stock suffered? So um, there, there's a few things. And you'll remember back to that that debate episode with Sarah. I took the bear case. And it, it seems like a lot of the points on that side of the fence have kind of proven themselves out and can can be attributed to for some of this uh, stock fall. You, If you look at the share at the price graph, it wasn't really until their first earnings report that it took a big hit. And, and a lot of that was attributed to daily active users not growing as quickly as they at the, as they said they would um, and you know looking at you know how their overseas business was doing it wasn't performing 
to where they wanted it to be. And these were some of the few things that management were willing to share with investors. Because you have to remember, Evan Spiegel, the CEO and his team, they've they've been known for being very secretive. We wrote about the culture of secrecy at this company that makes an app with photos that disappear. And they didn't give forward-looking guidance. Um, They don't provide a ton of granularity around their numbers. So it it was really a a bet sort of on what I've been calling these days of innovation intrigue for investors where they think it could be the next big thing. And frankly, it hasn't really borne out. So you had that earnings report where user growth wasn't necessarily where you wanted it to be. And then you started to see the downgrades roll in from some of the analysts. And I think one of the kind of uh, important points that we will we will look back on was actually from the Morgan Stanley analysts. And you'll remember, Morgan Stanley was the lead left underwriter on this deal. These analysts were involved on the in the background when this IPO price, before this IPO priced on March 1st, uh, basically helping them set valuation, you know, helping them launch this deal. They came out and said, uh, and I'm quoting here, we have been wrong about Snap's ability to innovate and improve its ad product this year and and user monetization as it works to move beyond experimental ad budgets, end quote. So we were wrong. For their, for their lead left analyst to come out and say we were wrong, and these are the folks who were you know exposed to probably some of the most access to what the Snap management team had to tell them before the IPO. Granted, that's, it's a different situation once they lift. Um, once they list, they do you know step back. That wall kind of goes up again. But it's a scary thing when you are a company and you have a giant, like in this case Facebook, and you have Instagram copying you step for step. So this kind of innovation intrigue and then being having the rug torn under you, torn out from under you by the big competitor, that's kind of what's driving Snap and, frankly, Blue Apron as well. Is it fair, though, to say we were wrong already with Snap? I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Facebook IPO'd, and if you look back to when Facebook IPO'd, a few months after Facebook IPO'd, its stock tanked too. It went from about, let's say, $32 a share to $18 a share. And at the time, the narrative was, Facebook can't generate any money on mobile advertising. And that was sort of the narrative for a little while. And Facebook hovered around $20 a share. And today it's $161 a share. And it's been pretty much a line up since about 2013, where it's demonstrated it was able to generate mobile advertising revenue. So is it too early to call this on Snap? Is that is it fair to do that, to say we were wrong? This is not a, a successful uh, launch of this company? So when you're in a situation like these analysts are in where they don't have a lot of, of forward guidance, of, of flavor from the company to base their models on, yeah, it is their job to get this right, right? When they when you're seeing a price target cut from $28 a share to 16 like Morgan Stanley uh, did, there was obviously something lost in translation. Um, they, they've What they've basically done is is brought down a lot of their uh, revenue forecasts and things like that. When, when I think about it, though, is it too early to call? Uh, you've seen a lot of changes, frankly, since just past last November when they first filed uh, confidentially. So the, the landscape is moving so quickly. Uh, Instagram has been so adept at matching them step for step. And, and one example of that is, is Snap has just uh, 166 million daily active users uh, at their last report. 
Instagram Stories, which is not even the whole app. It's just the rolling video thing that's very similar to Snap Stories. Instagram Stories has 250 million daily active users. They're already beating them there, and that that is brand new for them. So I think that the landscape has changed so quickly. Snap has not performed uh, as people probably expected them to, and that's what's driving uh, Morgan Stanley and others to kind of rein in their expectations for 2017 for Snap. By the way, speaking of analyst recommendations, we should probably mentioned that Blue Apron has its first. And part of the reason that you see some of these moves in stocks prior to their IPO is that you start to see the analyst coverage roll in. So that, including price targets, actually doesn't exist right away. And then typically, after the company starts trading public, that's when coverage begins from the various analyst community out there. There is one Analyst now with a price target on Blue Apron, North Coast Research, just out earlier this week, with a target price of $2 a share on Blue Apron. This was a company that IPO'd just a few weeks ago at $10 a share. Now right around 630 And now right around 630 So uh, that is... That is not usual that you would see something to that degree. Right. It's a big cut. And and to your point, the underwriters will be restricted for a little bit. So if you were on the deal, if your firm was on the deal, it takes some time before you can issue research. But yeah, we'll start to see those roll in on Blue Apron as well. All right. So let's talk about some of the counterexamples now, Alex. MuleSoft and Canada Goose. Why have these companies not underperformed? So starting with MuleSoft, uh, this is a a, a cloud software maker um, based in Silicon Valley. They listed, um, they raised about $254 million. They listed at uh, about $2.1 billion valuation. It's very classic of what the majority of the tech IPO pipeline looks like. It's an enterprise company. These days, a lot of it's SaaS, software as a service, cloud-based stuff. So they came out and um, they priced fairly reasonably. Um, It was a bit of a tick up from their last private round. And you have to remember, the IPO process, especially the roadshow, it's your debutante ball for the public markets. It's the first time you're coming out and saying, this is what we're about. This is why you should invest in us. And if you don't live up to those expectations, as Snap and Blue Apron don't seem to be, then invest Investors are going to flee for the exits. MuleSoft came out and and talked about. Uh, I, I spoke to the CEO Greg Schott on listing day from the, from uh, the exchange, and he said, "Look, we're focused on sustainable growth. We're focused on you know building out, bringing in new enterprise customers." It was a very measured, um, very kind of you know potentially setting the bar so it could be beat conversation and. That's kind of the the steady eddy thing that investors want to hold on to. It's not going to be the big you know big boomer stock because it's going to take off and and be the next big thing. But it's you know it's predictable. It's expected. They give visibility just given how uh, cloud companies report revenue. You can see their bookings. You can see they have recurring revenue. Uh, you know what you're going to get. Um, so so that's uh, MuleSoft for Canada Goose. Uh, it, it was one of the first retail IPOs in a long time. J. Jill listed earlier this year, but we really hadn't had a retail listing in a couple years. So Because the retail industry has been hammered, so why right. would you IPO? Right, exactly. Retail industry has been hammered. Um, for a, a niche that you think you have a real good audience for, and, and retail brand awareness is so important. Canada Goose, you know, they have all the coats you see in the wintertime in New York that all of the bankers, lawyers, financiers are wearing and paying up for. Uh, celebrities are wearing them when they're out and about in their Arctic excursions. 
it's it's a luxury item that has a very specific uh, target audience. They, uh, you know, they kind of took off. Their sales increased uh, quite a bit over the past couple of years. And, you know, they continued to deliver. They talked about moving into new product lines. They talked about moving into summerwear and things like that. They've started to make those advances. And, you know, it's a small company that people think has a big opportunity. And again, you're not going out there shocking people. You're not, you know, over-promising. You're not having to bet on innovation intrigue. You're betting on a tangible product that it seems like, you know, consumers are still, the brand's still resonating with them. Last question, Alex. So we've talked about a bunch of these anecdotally. Is there an index that exists where you can just invest in IPOs versus the market? So uh, in terms of investing, um, Renaissance has an index. It's IPO. IPO is the ticker um, that you can look into. You can track our index on the Bloomberg terminal. It's BIPO and then the index key go. And you can see how that has performed. That basically is a bucket of the trailing 12-month U.S. listings. Um, So those are probably the two best places to look at performance. And and speaking of performance, is it fair to say that the IPO index has historically underperformed where it usually performs if you look at this year? Uh, this year is uh, not as good as last year or the year before. The class of 2017 has not performed as well as the class of 2016. And if you, again, if you're on your Bloomberg terminal, BIPO index, go and you run HCP slash to see the yearly returns, you can get all your numbers right there. Alex Barinko, Bloomberg IPO reporter and friend of the podcast. Alex, thanks for joining us as always. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed that. Remember, you can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Terminal. Also, please rate and review the show while you're on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Alex, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Alex Barinka, A-L-E-X-B-A-R-I-N-K-A. Sarah Patterson is our producer. Alec McCabe, head of Bloomberg Podcast. See you next week.